Welcome back to the Black Lives Texas podcast, a project from the Institute of Urban Policy Research and Analysis, also known as IUPRA. We are your hosts. I'm Ricardo Lowe. And I'm Tracy Lowe. Today, we are finishing up our series on the Black middle class. On this episode, we will be contextualizing some issues around housing and population migrations in the U.S., specifically to Texas. First up, we will be hearing from Roger DeVoe, a longtime friend of mine who recently moved from New Jersey to Texas. He grew up in a more rural part of New Jersey, and after getting his degree in civil engineering, he started this job search. So when I chose civil engineering, pretty much all those jobs are, I guess, private sector design firms, but the funding all comes from government. So that's the kind of route that I took. So when I got onto USA Jobs, there was a lot of opportunity outside of New Jersey. So that's kind of how I moved that route, I per se. So it was like just me searching for, oh, what is a good job that I could get? That's government. And there were a lot of entry-level jobs that was something that I got to get to, to, I guess, apply for. And it just led me here because there was a lot of opportunities, a lot of jobs that was willing to take people at the bottom, per se, or just entering into the career and progress forward. So when you came down here and you were able to find that job, I'm wondering what those differences were in terms of accessing Black spaces and accessing Blackness in general, because you grew up in South Jersey. You grew up in a predominantly Black rural city. You went to school in Philadelphia, which has a significant Black population. Yeah. And you come to move down to San Antonio and you know that the Black population is... Well, tell me about that. Tell me about how it was for you. Did you did you exhibit any level of culture shock? How did you deal with that? Well, I mean, I guess when you is in this position where you're just trying to eat, kind of. I mean, I won't say I was destitute per se, but I was looking at that long-term uh, career choice, right? Mm-hmm. So I preferred to stay up north, but it just didn't work out that way. Even if I did get a, a job in a particular field, when you start at the bottom, you really don't have an opportunity to buy a house, to, to do any savings, you know, because the cost of living is so expensive. But when I came to Texas here, you could have that entry level um, job and get an entry level apartment, entry level house. You don't really have to worry about just your finances as much. So that was kind of the first thing. And then when I mean, I didn't really know about anything about San Antonio, per se, was besides Wally Coyote, you know, and, <laughs> and the Roadrunner, you know. So it was just like, man, I I, I don't know what I want to I'm getting into. So it, it's like that thing, like uh, my homeboy who came down here too, Doug, he was saying, like, you just stepped out on faith, you know, so. So I came down first, he came down later, but it was like, I didn't know anybody. So I just kind of took that same jump that I, that I did when I kind of left home to go to Philadelphia, you know, because mm-hmm. in those days, Philly was known for like, 
the violence and stuff. But I mean, that was just like stereotypes in the sense. And then when you was a kid, well, when I was a kid, my dad used to tell me all the bad things that happened in Philly and don't get lost and stuff. So that kind of kid thinking kind of transferred a little bit when I first went to Philadelphia. But once I got there, and it dawned on me. I said millions of people move to Philadelphia every day. There's millions of people who live there now. So how can they all be victims of violence and crimes and stuff? So that's when I started to kind of saying, you know what? The stereotypes that I see about leaving home, about the South or whatever, I mean, I just kind of said, ah, forget it. And just took a chance, took that risk because there was no way that I could have had the opportunity in New Jersey that I had here in San Antonio. Roger continued to talk to us about his choices in neighborhoods that were mostly based on commute times. When he lived in New Jersey, he had to sometimes cross three states to get to work and spend an hour or two commuting. Now he spends less than 30 minutes most days in Texas traffic. He also talked about the rapid growth happening in Texas's job market, which made it easier for him to get more interviews which led to his move to San Antonio. When I was in the, at home in Jersey, like, like let's say accessing the mortgage, right? So mm-hmm. you have uh, smaller banks and stuff and it, things wasn't on the internet, in my opinion, like it was 10 years ago. So when you search for like a large bank, you had to have, I mean, I didn't know the programs to, to access. So, but when I came to Texas, there was more people willing to kind of show you how to do things in those spaces. And and I think there wasn't, because if I had the same kind of opportunity in New Jersey, I would always think someone's trying to take advantage of me, you know? Oh, someone's just trying to get your money. But when you're here by yourself, you kind of had to see if they was going to play you out or take advantage of you because you're really not knowing how to do things. I mean, now I guess a social media account would kind of show you what you should do, but like maybe 10 years ago, that wasn't always the case. So here I kind of had to let your defenses down a little bit to to kind of get the information that you needed to do. So like, I mean, finding an apartment, I didn't know there were these things called locators. And I'm thinking like a locator, like, what is that? I never seen or heard of them in New Jersey, but I guess they might have them there, but no one really knew about them. Another major factor besides job opportunities for many folks is educational opportunities for their families. Roger informs us how he and his family approach education when deciding where to purchase a home. JJ, my son, I, I always wanted to put him into like the public school system. I felt I'm a public school uh, product. You know, I turned out pretty good and I was willing to give the public school system a, I guess, the benefit of doubt and try to kind of uh, let him attend there. But when we went to the pre-K meeting for like new pre-Ks, like the teachers kind of was like, um, well, because your son knows his ABCs and counts the one, two, threes. We won't really have much time to, to teach him anything beyond that because we're going to get a lot of kids in here that can't even understand the numbers or even their letters. So that kind of put, put it in my head like, oh, my goodness, 
we send him to these daycares and they taught him way more than what he's going to get in kindergarten. So it's sort of like maybe a charter school is some place that he needs to go because they're going to push him to another level, not just have him repeat what he's done for the past two years or one year, you know? So it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's one of those touchy subjects where I would like to be, I would like for him to go to a public school. I really would. But it seems like that the public school system has too much on their plate of just getting everyone to stand at this, the same level, you know, there's, there's, and when we did talk about, well, is there an enrichment program to go forward? He won't be evaluated for um, enrichment program uh, until first grade. So they don't do it for kindergarten. So, I mean, that's just my take on it from what we experienced so far. So my daughter, she's still in daycare and she hasn't really got to that point where we're thinking about, is she going to do private or just, I mean, not private, but public school or to send them to the same uh, charter school. But um, I, I think right now it's, it's probably going to be the charter school. So just to think about your daughter and your son, what are some of those educational expectations that you're hoping that you could get from a charter school that maybe you can't from a public moving forward? And you've already kind of talked about with the pre-K thing, like, those students are are just getting the basics of what your child already has. So what does that yeah. mean for the future? So I guess, I guess let's look at it. I guess break it in like, for me, it's like when you meet somebody for the first time and you really had a, a bad experience with them, like they might've misspoke or they might've said something dumb or crazy. And you're like, I don't want to, get to know you anymore because you already broke the mood of me wanting to get to know you. So that's kind of where I'm at with public school. I mean, it could be good down the line when he gets to middle school and high school or something, but just that first interaction with how, what the teachers was telling me they was going to do for him. It didn't put a good taste in my mouth. So, but when we went to charter schools, they kind of do that. And then he put a little bit on, what the basics is. So right now my son goes to uh, a science and technology school and he loves everything, computers, everything, tablets, uh, microphones, all that technical stuff. And I guess they have their program focused around that. So they have like a pandemic, you really can't tell, but they got just different, um, uh, I guess, uh, like, I guess, games kind of things that teach you coding without you really knowing that you're learning coding kind of thing. So maybe he could have done that at a public school. I, I don't know. But right now, it's just sort of like, well, it was, I, I don't know. Maybe if I even had different teachers at that school to represent that school, that kindergarten class, it probably would have went different. Gotcha. So you, so you feel you feel in a way that that charter schools, or at least the charter school that your 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 son attends, 
that they're being more attentive to your child than than traditional public school would have been? You feel like they're just they have more to offer? Um, I don't necessarily think it's more to offer. I just think that the way that the teachers was looking at the incoming kindergartners that they get paid or they their rating gets paid on how many cross the line to finish that particular grade. So if they get a bunch of kids that's already starting way low, that they're going to have to work more to get that kid across. And let's say my son, he's halfway there. You don't really have to work that hard to get them halfway there versus a kid that's way farther behind, you know? So it, that's the kind of vibe that I got. I mean, I don't know if I'm answering it correctly, but I, I just feel as if there's different, um, I guess, I guess, different focuses based on public and charter school. So like a charter teacher, she, I mean, she has a bubbly personality. Maybe if she was the one that I met at the public school, it might have been we going to the public school, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't think they offer anything that's recognizably better or different. Mm. Yeah, man, that is really interesting. There's, I, don't, I don't think that we talk enough to Black families about their preference or lack thereof of either choice. So I think you're probably the first mm-hmm. person I can think of who's given us an opportunity to engage with why you chose a charter school over a traditional public school. And I think more conversations like that need to happen, especially with Black families like yeah. yourself. Roger was able to take advantage of new home ownership programs and make choices based on school districts, work commute times, and other personal factors. Historically, that has not always been the case. Recently, the Texas legislature added a priority to remove racially restrictive covenants from property deeds. To explain more, we spoke with our colleague Annika Olsen about how even today these issues continue to arise and affect the black middle class. She explains how IUPRA got involved in researching housing policies and what sparked her interest in the subject area. We will also hear our producer Mariah jump in with a few questions for Annika during this interview. It was at the start of 2020, we really started to get into the housing. I mean, housing housing is a pillar of IUPRA. Of course, it's one of our research areas. But we really started to look more closely at housing when Austin um, was having meetings surrounding the land development code. So we wrote a few briefs about what is a land development code? What are these different terms? What is affordable housing and workforce housing? And that kind of led us down the path where we are now. So, uh, Anik, I wanted to ask you, and we were talking a, a bit about this earlier, but can you talk a little bit about your work on restrictive covenants? And then can you elaborate on how that inhibits the residential mobility among the Black middle class? Sure, sure. So I've written a policy brief about this, and I also wrote an op-ed. But just more generally, covenants and deed restrictions are these contingencies that are written into documents, into real estate documents, that limit the way a property is used, just baseline definition. So in theory, they're intended to make a a property more valuable. Um, And they were used in real estate transactions in the early 20th century, Um, So throughout the 1800s, the National Housing Act of 1934 really fueled these covenants um, and really increased segregation and redlining. So 
they have been around a really long time and they really are embedded in all of the deeds um, that are still present today. So these covenants were super effective in segregating neighborhoods, right? It essentially said, hey, certain folks cannot live here. Black and brown folks cannot live on this set of town. You know, white folks can only buy here. It really segregated people. Well, that stabilized the property values of white families, but really limited any mobility among the black middle class, especially. I mean, it literally did not allow them to live in certain mm-hmm. places, right? Um, so yeah, so it did not allow them to create any sort of intergenerational wealth, right? We know owning a home is a huge, huge means of building wealth. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll start with that. That's kind of just at the, the baseline. They're really, really limiting and inhibiting. Um, and I've hurt the mobility of the black middle class for centuries. All right, so today we know that restrictive covenants are illegal. However, in cities um, across the nation, especially metropolitan areas, neighborhoods are very racially and ethnically still segregated. So can you talk to us about how institutions and agencies covertly continue to steer Black families into, say, predominantly Black neighborhoods um, and just kind of limit their opportunities to access white neighborhoods? Yeah, absolutely. That still happens every day. I think at at its at its, you know, kind of foundation, racism is still very much alive and well, especially within housing. Um, and I think we were actually talking about this at work, stories coming out of IUPRA, right? That these real estate companies or realtors will really steer black families to suburban areas outside of Austin, right? That are increasingly becoming black and Hispanic. So I think Ricky, you might have told me or um, someone else at the office. You know, I talked to this realtor and they said, oh, yeah, definitely looking Round Rock. And he said, well, no, I'm looking at Austin. But the realtor, right, consciously or subconsciously thinks, oh, well, that's where more black families live. They're going to want to live in Round Rock. Right. And we see this explosion of, of the number of black folks moving to Maynard, Pflugerville, Hutto um, for a variety of reasons. A lot of it's affordability. Um, but I talked to an older black gentleman at my YMCA. And he says he doesn't really want to be here anymore. He doesn't want to be in Austin because he doesn't feel welcome, right? He doesn't see people that look like him. He doesn't feel that community anymore. So, you know, that that's, you know, he, he's kind of got pushed out, right? Um, so I think, I think that's a huge, huge piece of it. Um, and I know before we started uh, the show, we were talking about um, legislative agenda, the, legis- mm-hmm. the current legislative agenda. And racially restrictive covenants are actually number 30 on Lieutenant Governor Patrick's list of priorities, which we're pretty happy it made it on at all. Um, I think there were 32 total priorities. So it's not number one, but we're hoping, you know, that could mean some sort of legislative change, which would be great. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, prior to to my wife and I finding a realtor that we can trust. We had a couple of realtors before, and we did notice that a lot of the housing that we were being presented were on East Austin or in the Pflugerville and Round Rock area, which is mostly on the Eastern part of uh, 35. And so um, we consider ourselves to be black middle-class uh, family, right? And um, there was one time, well, maybe a couple of times I drove to the Western side of things. And I looked to see what housing looked like in uh, Cedar Park. And I was like, wow, these houses look nice, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it, this wasn't the realtor actually telling me this. It was just actually, you know, the, the people who are 
trying to sell new homes who are in there. You walk in and they're trying to sell you homes or whatnot. And they were like, oh, yeah, you know, we're building a community like this in Round Rock on blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's, of course, on the eastern side of the interstate. And we know that the historical, you know, segregation in Boston, even if the black middle class, when they come here, or if they do move from East Austin, they're still relegated mostly to the eastern half of the interstate. And that's exactly where we were steered. And so it's just interesting to see how those processes take place. And I can also um, identify or at, at least empathize with um, your friend at the YMCA, because to be honest, I don't know if I would want to live in a community that is predominantly white, because I do like the idea of building community with black people. But it is interesting to see that people are making that determination for you, <laughs> as opposed to knowing you know, where you stand. So um, thank you for that. Um, I did want to ask you uh, another question. I want to steer a little bit into affordable housing. Mm. So can you discuss, because I know you've done a lot of work on affordable housing and we really do appreciate your work. So can you discuss the issue of affordable housing in Texas? And then can you talk about the current state of affordable housing and what are the challenges that black middle-class families may be facing in particular? Yes, yes. Now this is an issue that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, affordable housing is an issue across the United States, right? It is rampant in Texas, but I, I want to make sure it is well known that this is a problem everywhere. And I'm going to throw out some numbers for you guys just to paint a picture. But the National Low Income Housing Coalition released a report, I believe this week or last week. Um, it's their 2020 edition of it's called the Gap Report. Um, and it evaluates the housing shortage for low income households in the United States because we know those are the folks that have the most trouble, right? Getting any sort of housing, whether it's a house, an apartment and finding stability. That's, that's the group we're most worried about. So in this year's report, they found that the US has a total shortage of 7 million rental homes that are affordable and available to low income renters. Um, so this means about 36 affordable and available homes per every 100 low income renter households, which is crazy, right? But they're worse in Texas. So we thought 36 was bad. But in Texas, there are only 29 affordable and available homes per those 100 households. And Austin, this is pretty sad. Austin is tied for the nation's worst score with 14 affordable and available homes Lord. per every mm -hmm. 100 wow. extremely low-income renter household. Dallas and Fort Worth have like a few more, maybe, what I don't remember, in 19 or something. But mm -hmm. they're in the top 10. I mean, so to say that Austin ranks for the worst and Dallas and Fort Worth are in the top 10 is, is pretty staggering. Um, so the, the crisis is real. The affordable housing crisis is real. I'm currently looking for a home and the inventory is so low and the prices are so high. It is unbelievable. People put in offers sight unseen, have all this cash on hand. There's an influx of folks from other states with a ton of money in their hands. And we just do not have the inventory to keep up middle class folks, much less anyone that is not that is middle class or below. Right. Even upper middle is struggling right now. Um, but I did and I did read recently an article in the Texas Tribune. This was in San Antonio um, and San Antonio has some of the worst poverty and segregation rates in the country. And now these there's increasing rents that are happening in San Antonio, much like Austin. And this article talks specifically about how these folks are struggling to keep up with the cost of living. 
right? So it was between 2018, or sorry, excuse me, 2008 and 2018, the rent increased from 860 to 1100 in San Antonio. So that's a 16.5% jump was more, it was more than New York City and almost about the same as LA, but their median incomes only grew from 35.7 to 36.9K. I mean, that's so, that's an increase of what, a couple hundred dollars, mm-hmm. right? So I guess um, this was a kind of a long answer, but there's this huge issue of affordable housing and the challenges that folks are facing, especially black middle-class families, is that wages are not keeping up, right? There's a lack of affordable housing. Wages are not keeping up. The jobs are not, it just doesn't align. Um, so I think that's, that's the single biggest challenge is getting more affordable housing. And how, how on earth, you know, will the black middle class have any mobility, right? They've already not been able to buy homes for so long because of other reasons. And now because it's so expensive. Uh, I, I just wanted to add, cause it's so interesting what you said, you know, um, I grew, well, I lived in San Antonio for about 10 years, right? So I went to middle school and high school there. And when I go back home, I see how the community that I grew up changed. So I lived close to Converse, shout out to Converse, um, which is on the outskirts of East San Antonio. And um, it's the proximity to Converse to East San Antonio is not too far. And we all know that segregation in San Antonio is very similar to that of anywhere else. Black people were segregated to the east side of San Antonio. And so with gentrification and displacement happening in East San Antonio, you started seeing a migration of Black families over to Converse and Shirts and Cibolo. Same thing that was what's happening in Austin. And what's interesting about that is that when I grew up in Converse, it was maybe about 15% Black, but now it's almost a quarter Black. And they're building houses everywhere. And the houses are relatively affordable. Like the housing market in San Antonio is not that of Austin. But it's interesting at where they're putting these houses. My father always says, they'll build a house anywhere. They're, they're putting houses literally on, on railroad tracks, right? And so, and the majority of the people who are moving into these spaces tend to be Black, right? And so you're, you're, the, the, the search for affordable housing has rippled into the suburban areas like Converse and stuff like that. And now you're also thinking a little bit more about the ecology of it all, just like where you put these houses have have a role in, in who gets to move there and why it's cheap in the first place. But then what are the potential um, you know, effects of moving into these spaces? It's not always suitable to live in a space that is so close to the rail, railroad tracks is what we know from research. But that's where a lot of Black families are moving to because they're searching for cheaper homes. And right. so it's, it's crazy. Right. And yeah. those neighborhoods, that makes me think, is it a food desert, right? If they're living near a railroad track, is it safe? Is it loud? Can they get to work? Is there food nearby? Is it safe for kids? Then all of these other kind of environmental factors come into play too. Geographic factors. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And Ricky, that makes me think about zoning and like how like people tended to be zoned into like industrial zoning areas where, you know, you have the sewer plants and all of the, the I'd say, toxic industrial plants that a lot of like neighborhoods are still by even today. So putting the house near a railroad track, that doesn't surprise me at all. So it just brings up, I guess, remnants of things in the past that still continue today, like the restrictive covenants we talked about, Annika. So um, again, where a person lives impacts a lot of different things. 
And we also know where a person lives can impact their educational outcomes in several ways, especially for the children of Black residents. So can you talk to us? I know you do a lot of work in education, a lot of phenomenal work in education and housing. So can you talk to us about how the intersection of housing and education, what that means for the educational opportunities of Black children, and then specifically Black middle-class families? Sure, sure. So you're totally right. There's a huge intersectionality of housing and education. And generally where you live determines where you go to school, unless you're going to a private school or maybe a religious school somewhere else. But generally your neighborhood determines your school. So if you're in a lower income neighborhood or one that has any sort of toxic plants or et cetera nearby, um, the chances are your school will have fewer resources, right? If it's not a well-resourced area of town to begin with, chances are the school will also not be, right? We, we know generally wealthy neighborhoods have more resources. They have quote unquote better test store scores, a robust PTA, probably ample supplies and et cetera, right? And we see... Um, I really think in America, like it's backwards, right? It's like we have these vulnerable populations who need the most resources and they go to schools that don't have the resources, right? Mm -hmm. um, I worked at a school on the east side in Austin. They lived across, um, it was across the street from Section 8 housing. That was most of our students. And man, they're, you know, that impacts their educational outcomes. A lot of them aren't getting great food. A lot of them, you know, are highly mobile and may not be living in the same place every night. Um, so, so place, place and education, place and school mean a lot. Um, and it does, it limits the educational opportunities of black middle-class families, right? School, these schools with fewer resources potentially, are there extracurriculars? Do they have potentials for internships? Can a parent drive them there or drop them off? Do they even have a car? Do they need to work to support the family, right? College is expensive. I feel like there's this whole foundation um, that's being laid, that's limiting, you know, kind of what they're able to do. Um, and I think, I think Dr. Wright, our associate director, sent us a Vox article and it said, I'm going to quote it. I think I wrote it down here. Um, Even when Black Americans reach an income level that situates them in the middle class, there's still a matrix of discriminatory system that make it difficult for them to gain the stability, the wealth that theoretically accompanies middle-class existence. Um, so tying that into education, we know it impacts educational outcomes and it'll impact them negatively. And yeah, it's, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It seems like the intersection runs across so many different things because I remember doing research on, um, um, black maternal mortality. When you're looking at Black women, irrespective of class, they stand a higher chance of dying at childbirth mm -hmm. relative to their white counterparts, even if you're Black middle class or upper middle class. I mean, if you if you see what happened with Serena Williams, I mean, she talks mm -hmm. about that as well. She almost passed away while giving birth. And so there's certain things that socioeconomic status, it, it can't buy you. Like, it's not right. going to get you into a safer sometimes it doesn't get you into a safer neighborhood, right? It doesn't get you into safer spaces. And it, sometimes it's not going to lead you to, uh, you know, a more productive life relative to your white counterparts who have the same socioeconomic status. So it's just really interesting and sad. 100%. No, 100%. I feel like that's why the vernacular around, you know, politicians, right? Like, we don't want where your zip, what your zip code is or what a child's zip code is to determine their opportunities. But it does. And it has for a really, really long time. And I feel like that's always the rhetoric in all these speeches. We don't want your zip code to determine, you know, your outcomes in life. And it still does, right? Mm -hmm. As it has for so, so long. 
So right. we really need to make some progress. You know. What are some of the challenges facing Black families today? And then what are some specific issues that Black middle-class families continue to face in the educational system? Sure, sure. I think broadly, just access to a great education where Black students are valued, supported, and have intentional policy, right, that does that supporting. And I think that comes from a local, state, and federal level. And I think, you know, that access to a great education um, needs to address one, the racial disparities that exist and the racism within the system. I just, um, for Dr. Coakley's book chapter, wrote a lot about um, the racism within, within the educational system. So that's something huge. It's not just addressing the gap, right? The gap, the educational gap, it's also addressing the, the blatant racism. Um, I think the specific issues that affect the black middle class, I wanna say really is um, attending schools that are still segregated by race and wealth. I think that seems to be the biggest thing. One of our um, interns, Valerie, wrote a great brief on that. I think you worked with, the, um, with her on that, Ricky. But I think the segregation, um, and this maybe is not just, you know, only the black middle class, but all maybe black middle, black lower, et cetera. Um, but I think attending schools that are not segregated by race and wealth will be huge. Teachers who look like their students, I think is super necessary. And of course, just intentional policy mm -hmm. to address all of those things. Yeah. So there, there are significant challenges still, still to, to face. That's such a positive, like, yay, okay, great. The system's broken and it's going to stay broken. Nice, Annika. Very pessimistic. No, but it's real, though. It's real, though, because, you know, a, a lot of the times um, I'm a black middle class parent and, you know, we, we're living in Round Rock and those are some of the issues that, you know, we, we face. It's very comparable. I mean, it's very comparable to what you were saying about what black people face in general. A lot of it is rooted in racism and anti-blackness. And you're going to feel anti-blackness, whether you're LeBron James or whether you are Ricky Lowe. So it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, it's interesting. It, it shouldn't. A lot of times when we talk about segregation, it's um, I don't think that. And, you know, a, a lot of us talk about this all the time. You know, the solution shouldn't be to add white children into schools so that the school educational opportunities for black students um, advance because of that. Mm. But it's just what comes with segregation and, and the lack of resources that these communities get just because they don't have white students is so problematic. And yeah, I read an article about the black middle class in Atlanta and we were just going back into housing. Um, and they were saying how this black middle class community had to fight so that they wouldn't, um, the city wanted to build I think it was like a storage unit next to their to their community. Um, I forgot exactly what it was, but whatever it was, it was something that they felt would devalue the neighborhood. And the black community had to fight for that not to be positioned there. And that's something that a lot of black middle class uh, communities go through is you have to really, there's certain things. Um, sometimes it's somewhat of the same logic as other middle-class communities. It's like, we don't want that there because it's going to devalue our homes. But then you start having this conversation as to why black middle-class house, houses and communities tend to be more devalued relative to their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. And it could be because of things like that. So it's just interesting. That's Yeah, no, that's a great point. And that may be another episode. I know um, the chief of staff for Representative Jarvis Johnson struggles with that a lot in Houston, all the environmental racism, right? 
something like building some sort of plant next to a house that devalues it, right? Or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. But that's a huge problem. I know for sure in Houston, and I'm sure, like you said, in Atlanta and a lot of other places. Talking about like policy changes, and now that there is this priority um, at the ledge for this session, what are like essentially what should people be paying attention to to call their legislators about to like either support or not support? Because Ooh, I, I think this. when you when you talk like I'm like, I feel like I'm a pretty plugged in person uh, on policy. And I'm like, I don't even know what I should be looking out for and like what wording they might be using that's like still mm-hmm. sneaky and not actually doing things that are going to change anything. So like what should people be on the lookout for policy wise to support to make housing more equitable? Okay. I love that question. I think call to action is if you're a homeowner, if you're a renter, if you know a homeowner, ask them to look at their property documents. A lot of homeowners do not know that their property documents contain super racist language. Um, And industry professionals actually, so urban planners, real estate agents, lawyers, um, are situated really well to engage in discourse that brings awareness to this issue. So I think one, if you're a homeowner, look at your documents, right? Bring it up to your local elected officials, your state officials, bring it to the federal level. Secondly, we really got to engage these urban planners, real estate professionals, and lawyers to have this public dialogue around the history and ongoing damages um, that's brought about by these racially restrictive covenants. Um, And a couple of states have worked to remove the language. It's generally pretty expensive. California has done an okay job of doing that. And so has Washington. Now, a few homeowners and I went in Washington, Minnesota, California, and Oregon can ask a clerk to attach a modification document to their deeds stating that the offensive language is now illegal. So if you'd like to do something like that, and we, that's what we want to push for, right, is to at least get a modification document that says this racist language is unenforceable and it has been for 70 years and we we are recognizing it as racist and appropriate language. Um, so the Texas legislature is, legislature is potentially looking to do that um, coming up. And if anyone, yeah, if you're interested in this and wanna, wanna learn more. Well, maybe we can ask you now, like what, what do you think, Annika, are some of the positive things that, you know, what are some of the upsides for the black middle class in terms of housing? Yeah, no, I think there definitely is movement in the right direction, right? I think there are leaders, right, at a, at, a, at a local level, at a state level, at a federal level that can make good changes, right? One small local example would be Councilman Greg Kassar. He's doing great work in his district in North Austin to make sure there is more affordable housing, the community has a voice, and rent prices are not absolutely skyrocketing. So there are, you know, there is there is an increase in affordable housing in his district. He has, you know, a lot of different projects going on related to that. So that's one specific local example. But I do think um, this is kind of catching on, right? There is some movement in the right direction. I really do think, too, with the new administration, there can be a lot more movement in the right direction. Um, so there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope there. It's just a really long process. For more information about restrictive covenants, please see the show notes. You can also, as a homeowner, check your own deed and have the language removed. Again, more information in the show notes. Thank you to our guests, Annika Olsen and Roger DeVoe, sharing their knowledge and personal experiences. Uh, This is the last episode of the season, but we will be back in a few months with a new topic. If you have been enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your community. 
Black Lives Texas is a podcast by the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin. It is produced and hosted by Tracy Lowe and Ricardo Lowe, with additional production and editing by Mariah Gossett. Our music is by Upper Reality. Until next time. Hasta la próxima vez. See you later.